Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everybody, welcome back to Podside Picnic. Uh, this is Pete, and I'm here with Connor, the, uh, I don't know, the den to my Lochnar. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if your ears perked up then, you'll know that we're going to be talking about the movie Heavy Metal today, which is something I've been trying to get Connor to watch for literally years. So I'm very excited about this. This is where the rubber meets the road in pulp movies in what I'd call the modern era. And I'm just, I just made that up, but like, what the hell, uh, Connor, how was it? (laughs) Well, I, I just, I just finished it and, uh, it's, so it's all just kind of bouncing around in my brain. And this is the kind of movie that can bounce around in your brain because I don't know that psychedelic is quite the right word. I think the more, the less glamorous trippy might describe some aspects of this movie. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, what can you say, man? It's a, it's a one way ticket to midnight. Call it heavy metal. <laughs> um, very 70s sensibility in this movie. Yeah. And it, you know, it came out in 81, which is kind of in our sweet spot. Like you said, it has a 70 sensibility. So it, 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 I don't know what it was written and stuff. And there's obviously, I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, it is a mess in the most literal sense, which is it's an anthology of sci-fi or uh, fantasy sci-fi stories, whatever, that's centered on the Lochnar, which is this orb that embodies pure evil. Uh, as I say that, you probably have a good sense of the sort of the seriousness of this film. Um, <laughs> there's, and yeah, there's how many segments are there? I guess Wikipedia thinks there's uh, nine or ten, depending on how you count. And it's kind yeah. of like watching, you know, things like Love, Death, and Robots that we've talked about in the show have taken their cues from this kind of storytelling. It's that kind of anthology with a more of a loose connection, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, we can go a lot of places from here. Uh, we, we've got our, our uh, placemat mat written on in crayon where we're navigating this episode, I guess. Uh, we can just start going through section by section. Um, this would be as good a time as any for me to babble about the origins of this, if you want me to do that. Um, you know, you know, I think, what do I think here? I think we should set the mood here a little bit, talking about the movie and the way that it opens. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, Pete, when I first started watching this, I was very worried because the, like, the early animation in this movie is some of the worst. It was probably slapped in there at the end. And it opens with like a space shuttle... With one of the many great like seventies, early eighties, like you know, metal like proto metal. Uh, this is a phenomenal soundtrack. This soundtrack is legendary. It has like Blue Oyster Cult, Sammy Hagar, um, 
a bunch of band, Black Sabbath, like a bunch of bands like that, right? Devo. So, <laughs> Devo, yes. Yeah, so it's like this amazing kind of, it, it, I mean, the soundtrack alone is worth watching the movie in a lot of ways. The way that they use it is is great, I think. I forget which song is playing or if it's like a custom made song that when the, you know, the space shuttle is over a very poorly animated earth and it opens and like a Corvette falls out and there's an astronaut and like the, whatever, not Corvette, some kind of convertible, doesn't matter. <laughs> and he enters the atmosphere that way, whether it's a metaphor or not. And he goes home to his daughter and uh, he's brought her a gift and it turns out to be the orb of evil. Bad idea, man. Um, <laughs> And again, like you just have to watch it to get this. You can you can see it on it's you can uh, rent it on Amazon fairly cheaply. It it just defies description. I think if if you've seen this movie, you're nodding along right now, like ah, the, my fond memories of you know radar, 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 rider as the astronaut is going through the atmosphere. I don't know, man. I mean, like it, I, here's a question I want to ask you. I do want to hear about the origins of the magazine at some point. But first, just tell me when did you first see this? Oh gosh. Um, well, when when cable arrived on the scene because i i was definitely i was alive and sentient when we went from just having to use antennas to tune in tv to getting cable which was uh an exponential improvement even though it still sucked and pete was it, your dad up on the roof with the, like the rabbit ears like, did you, do you <laughs> yes, of that? Was. i remember him <laughs> going up there and moving the rabbit ears to, so we could catch a game absolutely <laughs> <That's> awesome <laughs> but when cable showed up one of the one of the the cool things that showed up was HBO and my parents weren't going to get HBO because there were tits on it. But, uh, uh, my best friend at the time, his parents did because they didn't care about that. And we probably saw a, uh, heavy metal eight times because <laughs> I mean, it was just constantly on. There were just some movies you saw again and again, like the, 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 the Excalibur movie. I saw that a bunch of times. There's horror movies that came up again and again. I saw the thing a bunch, but, and that please note, I'm not complaining. Some movies you want to see again, but heavy metal was great to see when you were like 12 years old and don't have any artistic sensibilities and you were desperately horny and you like rock and roll. Like it was perfect. I think you nailed this, which is that this is an R-rated movie, and make no mistake, it's R-rated for a reason. There's a tremendous amount of nudity, and we'll get into that more. Um, but it's R-rated, but it's an R-rated movie for, like, 11 or 12-year-olds. Like, it's like a proto-adolescent male, heterosexual male's, like, idea of an R-rated movie. <laughs> like, yes. So you saw it at the exact perfect time. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. Like, and I think for a lot of people in your generation, it's sunk in in that exact way. I mean, you can see once you watch this movie, it's kind of it's one of those cult movies, it's kind of a skeleton key. And when you watch it, you start to see the ways it influence other things that you're much more familiar with. Um, I'm trying to think of other cases, but I, I feel like this this influence like and it's drawing these influences from elsewhere. Like it's getting like a lot of pulp from this like this moment that's become our sweet spot, which is like roughly seventy six, seventy seven to like eighty four. For for whatever reason, that that turn towards the neoliberal and the beginning of the Reagan era is is like our sweet spot for for screen stuff for the show. Um, like it, a lot of that was was drawing on like you know samurai movies and stuff. But like I can see this kind of filtering in later. I think heavy metal, like where it filters in most, it's a very pastiched and made fun of movie because there are so many things about like, we're going to have like a standoff in a saloon that draws on the tradition of samurai and Western movies, but there's going to be a lot of tits in it like, yes. at oh. the same time. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I mean, it, like, if you sat down with this and said, "All right, we're we're going to get our scalpel out. We're going to explore the plot here." You're going to have a terrible time because, like, you could take any one of the segments out of here, and it would make just as much sense. Yeah, and, and to be clear, like the one reason you can't really dissect it is because there is very little coherency by design. There's your loosely linked little vignettes, which I am told by Wikipedia were like created by different studios, simul- animation studios simultaneously. Like there was very little like the parts of this movie don't talk to each other very well. I think that's probably part of the charm is that like if you don't like uh, one of these particular flavored marshmallows in this breakfast, this sweet child's breakfast cereal, you might like one of the other ones. <laughs> so I think we might, might as well go through it. So we talked about the so-called soft landing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the and the sort of the second piece of that, the the Grimaldi where he goes in and talks to his daughter and gives her the green orb. Terrible parenting. Did your dad ever bring you home something stupid from a long trip? I've got a good one. I nothing nothing like notable. What was yours? Well, um uh, so I, I was in Spanish and I was doing poorly and my dad went down to Mexico and while he was there, he grabbed a book on the Mexican Revolution because he's like, You're a kid, you like war, this you know, and he brings it home and he manages to find me the only book in Mexico on the Mexican Revolution in French. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> That's a classic dad, dad wonder right there. <laughs> it is. But you know, to be fair, it wasn't laden with evil. I mean, like, it could have been worse. <laughs> right. It could have been the, the cursed tome uh, <laughs> brought home. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, what happens here is immediately this astronaut opens the suitcase that he's got this space object, which, by the way, when you're an astronaut, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to take space objects home for your kids. Anyway, lesson learned, because it comes out of the suitcase and melts melts him, and then starts talking to his daughter, like, now I will tell you tales of my existence as an orb of evil. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that that's pretty much what it says. <laughs> that yeah, kicks yeah off, pretty much. That kicks off heavy metal. So the first one I found particularly interesting to, today it's called Harry Canyon. That's the the named after the protagonist. And oh, is that of, what it's named after? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just explaining to folks here. So, by the way, when I saw this, I immediately thought of uh, the influence of this on Futurama because Harry Canyon has a big like. He reminded me of Bender in their their kind of like futuristic uh, New York City, and and it this is very like both of the moment that the the movie was made. Uh, that late 70s, early 80s moment. It's very of that moment. It's also of our moment because now we're back to just like those times we're back to talking about how cities are all shitholes that are being destroyed. So like this, this vignette takes place in, I guess, 2031 in New York City. And and it's basically just, you know, late 70s New York on steroids. So it's riven with crime and corruption and, and, you know, like and sleazy sexuality and Harry Canyon taxi cab driver meets a dame. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. She was a pushy dame, but she had a case. Was- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. And it kind of, you know, there's a lot of um, loving rendering of a New York where every citizen seems to be either a dirty cop or a prostitute. Again, this is all like old noir tropes ported up to the kind of like the the era when all cities on screen had to be depicted as like collapsing shitholes, but especially New York. And uh, did you look port- at the yeah. cast list on this? It's very funny. I did not really. Oh, well, it's like uh, Percy Rodriguez as the Lockdar, John Candy as the Desk Sergeant, <laughs> Marilyn Lightstone as Whore. It's like, <laughs> whoa, wow. But yeah. I mean, like, that's what it was like. 
I mean that like it, it was um, it was a '70s version of a future past is what we're looking at here. Yeah, and I just find it such an interesting like artifact on so many levels. Like, and the, the politics of this first one are like just so wretched. He's like. This guy wants to go to the UN building. Oh, they turned it into low-income housing. It's a dump. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and now I'm looking at New York and I'm like, yeah, please turn the UN building into low-income housing. That'd be great. Like, we could really use more of that in New York City. Like, um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole good. Oh, and well, they they uh, at, at one point he's dealing with an alien and and he starts talking about illegal aliens and their need to be deported. Right, right. There's a terror. There's a, hila- uh, a hilarious pun about illegal aliens because there's like Venusians that are trying to buy the orb from this girl who's super hot, and he kind of rescues her, and then she they sleep together, and then she there's a whole thing about the orb, and she stabs him in the back. And it's important. A couple important facts about Harry Canyon. He has a death ray in the backseat of his cab that he can use on any 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 fares who try to rob him or screw him over, and he uses it a couple times, including on this girl when she double crosses him. He also has like guns like rear-facing guns in his cab and i'm like wondering like why is this guy a cab driver i feel like someone that ingenious could get a better job you know <laughs> yeah yeah well uh maybe it, it was pretty profitable for him this time <laughs> i said yeah no no thanks to cab driver that's 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 like difficult and skilled work i'm just laughing that like he has all these like capabilities and it's like yep yeah, i'm still gonna drive a, a cab in a city that i hate rather than doing literally anything else but hey that's 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 uh heavy metal for you uh Definitely some great music. There's like, it's like five like great songs. We get Stevie Nicks, Journey, Bloister Cult, just in that one uh, vignette. It's pretty pretty remarkable stuff. So the next one is the one that Pete referenced called Den, and I think this one has a special place in Pete's heart. You wanna you wanna explain this one, Pete? <laughs> well, it does because I mean it uses classic fantasy tropes. And remember, I saw this when I was 12 years old, and so it was like about a a 12 year old nerdy kid who encounters the orb, and it sends him into uh, a fantasy realm and turns him from a scrawny little nerdy kid into a guy who can shred bricks with his hands, and he sort of like goes on a hero of the realm adventure. He gets the girl who turns out to be another nerd from, from earth. Um, uh, I don't know. There's, there's wonderful lines. There's Cthulian references. I mean, I to the end of my days, like when somebody messes with me, I always want to look over them and go guards castrate him. I love that. <laughs> and it has the, there's a lot of like, uh, cult lines that became famous on here, especially in the early internet. Like, there's no way I'm walking around this place with my dork hanging out. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one of Den's lines. And it's just great, because like you said, it's like, it's this, he, he becomes this sort of quasi-magical He-Man, you know, Conan-type, but keeps the sensibility of a nerdy adolescent boy from, you know, some small town somewhere. So, like, it's it's truly... It's of that caliber of story that makes up, like, if you were to measure the preponderance of sci-fi and fantasy that's been written, um, you know, in the last hundred years, like, 98% of it is basically, like, stories that are like this one, where it's like, let's make a 12-year-old think about what it would be like to morph into a He-Man in a magical realm and get mad laid, right? Like, Oh, right. Well, and if you think about it, like, he goes through the portal, and he becomes Conan, and then this girl who's an astronomer goes through the portal, and she becomes very large-breasted. Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of, like, every, so there's a convention 
let's put it this way. There's a convention in this entire film. And this must have been one of the few coherent instructions that was given to all the different studios, which is that if there's a female character, she has to be conventionally gorgeous. She has to have huge tits and she has to get naked because it happens every goddamn time. (laughs) Yeah, it's I mean, it's kind of impressive in a way. I think this might be the good time to segue for a second, if that's all right with you, Connor. Please do. Okay, so let's talk about where all this comes from. In the early 70s, there was a French magazine called Howling Metal, and it had a very unique sensibility in that it dealt with adult themes, but it didn't do it in an adult way. It dealt a lot with violence, it dealt a lot with nudity, it dealt a lot with sex, and it did it in a way that that was very European and yet somehow not cosmopolitan, you know? And it this popular magazine in Europe got noticed by a few people in America, and they got the licensing to set up a similar magazine here and start translating and transporting the stories. Instead of calling it Howling Metal, which they thought sounded stupid, uh, they turned it into Heavy Metal. And um, as that progressed, they decided that they would rather promote American artists and American uh, uh, writers. And while I, I, I suspect they did it out of some sort of like misplaced loyalty, I like the idea that they're, you know, you're developing more and more places where people are writing stories and paying them. So whatever. But this this magazine like picked up and became one of the ones you really noticed in the comic book store. And on the basis of that, they made this movie. And most of these stories either crib off of or directly lifted from pages of that magazine. It, you know what? That is. Thank you for that. It clarifies some things. Like the fact that this began in uh, continental Europe makes a lot of sense because it's it's you know. There are so many similarities to that, the pulpy sensibility here to what you'd see in the U.S. It's just that the sexual urges that are made oblique or repressed are just like, you know, sort of brought to the forefront relentlessly. That's that's kind of the main. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's probably the biggest change that's happened. And, and you know, it's like it, there's there's also, a, I think, a comfort with the like, I think American culture to this day uh, if you're making something that is erotic to the point of being pornographic, you're still not supposed to package it such that it's obviously for 12 year olds. And I think that's probably more okay, historically in France. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, so like this is, I, I, I think that's what, I think that the reason this movie has such purchase, like we can laugh about it and it's, it should be laughed at, but it's like the, the reason this movie has so much purchase in our collective imaginations and has had this cult cult ongoing role is that it is the movie you see when you're in that that super impressionable age getting towards puberty and that you find very arousing on i mean if you're again if you're attracted to women especially if you're a young heterosexual male you're gonna find it so arousing and like in like really stupid cartoonish terms that are probably bad for you for like your future sexuality (laughs) and expectations but like but again like it even if you get over that it's going to stick in your memory as like, holy cow, look at those boobs and there's a dragon or a bird or like whatever, you know, Tarna flies, you know, like it yeah, just. Yeah. What is that thing, man? <laughs> and like, I, you know, we can mock it. It should be mocked. We can also uh, wag our finger at it because it's problematic. And like, it's so it is so problematic. It's so problematic that I almost feel like the word misogyny is almost like 
too important for this movie. Like it's it's it is misogynistic, but it's like the objectification is just so goddamn stupid that like I I'm sure it's had an adverse effect on many people, but it's also like you know, I think once you learn to use your brain about these things, you can sort of see you can sort of see through what heavy metal's doing. It's not as insidious as some other potentially, you know, messed up depictions of sexuality. So that's the best thing. I, that's the closest thing to a defense I can mount of all of this. Yeah. Well, and I also I I I, I acquit the people who made this of malice. Like the when when they made this, the the line of reasoning was definitely on the line of hey, let's see some tits. Like they weren't trying to manipulate the young. There, there was no long-term plan here. It's just they. It was um, horny was not using its inside voice is what was happening in this. And I mean, like honestly, when you're 12, that's what's going on with you anyway. So I have some questions about how much damage it could do, um, provided you've got some good influences in your life too. I mean, yeah, and especially like by this point where we are, 40 years later. If we want to go down the rabbit hole of like damaging influences, um, probably the incredibly easy access from a young age to hardcore porn, some of which is, can be troubling, uh, is is yeah. probably worse than this, which is uh, very pornographic but softcore pornographic, and just encourage and encourages like a very classical kind of objectification of women that is just it's it's dorky. I mean, it's nerdy. Yeah. It's the only way to it's describe quaint. it. It's quaint. It's mean, like, exactly. Yeah. I, the, considering what you could access now to, with less effort, like you had to pay to get this. Right, right. <laughs> you were probably better off as a 12-year-old watching this than like <laughs> any random Pornhub movie. To <laughs> so anyway, um, wow. there's that. Well, it's probably, I mean, it's true, I think. Oh, but, it's absolutely uh, true. Yeah. Um, it, so, okay. Just final note about that one before we move on. As you said, the, the god in the den one is Ulatek, who we don't actually see. But you're right. It hadn't occurred to me that is Cthulhu spelled backwards. So Yes, it is. That's, uh, <laughs> that's where the reference comes from. Okay, so the next one is Captain Stern, uh, which is a brief kind of comic. I would say it's like a comic morality tale with a like an ironic twist where, well, there's this, this sort of big-chinned, scumbag guy who looks a lot like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Yes, uh, voiced by Eugene Levy. Ah, you're picking out some of the great well-known actors in this. Like, John Candy's in this, but, like, for, like, two seconds. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he's Den, and then he's, like, a like a desk cop or something. Right. Oh, is he Den as well? Yeah. Oh, God, okay, I'm not even... You're tracking all this way better than I am, but, yeah. Den, um, well, to be fair, I've seen it a few billion times. Seen it a couple times, yeah. <laughs> so, we meet this guy, he's, like, in some intergalactic federation, and clearly everyone hates him, and they want to kill him for a bunch of crimes, um many of which are quite dastardly uh, and he's going to get hung basically. And, and we see him bring up uh, Captain Stern brings in a character witness called Hanover fist. Uh, and what happens next, Pete? Well, uh, Hanover fist uh, starts saying wonderful things about him. Uh, like, you know, I've never met a kinder man, uh, and I couldn't imagine him doing anything terrible unless you count all those times he sold pornography to children disguised as a nun. And like he just he keeps <laughs> saying more and more horrible things about him. And as he does that, he starts hulking out to the point where he starts tearing the space station apart that they're on and chasing down uh, Stern. Yeah. So he chases down Stern in, in this Hulk form and he's like knocking away all the guards and he's like 
uh, you know, whether intentionally or not, he's letting Stern escape the courtroom. And then he finally corners Stern, and this is where it becomes a morality tale. So just to note, by the way, Hanover Fist had the Lochnar during this. Just assume the involvement of the Lochnar. It's not interesting enough for me to keep bringing it up. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he corners Hanover Fist, or he corners Stern, and, and Stern is like, all right, you got something coming to you, buddy. And he you know, reaches in his jacket, and he pulls out the money that he's supposed to give Hanover Fist and starts counting it out. And when he gives it back to him, Hanover Fist like, shrinks back to normal size, seemingly sated and is like well pleasure doing business boss and then you know the dastardly captain stern betrays him and launches him into outer space and that's the that's the morality tale which is that i guess when you're you know hulking out to kill the dastardly guy you should finish the job rather than (laughs) being being bought off (laughs) yeah or or you know pay your debts i mean you could go either way with this right i mean yeah exactly uh yeah so captain stern he does one good thing in his life which is he pays his debts um (laughs) So the next one, and that was a pretty brief one. And then the next one yep. um, was the B seventeen. Yeah, the, so I'm the, looking at this Chris, this Wikipedia page. They're supposed to do another one, which I guess is like an extra scene somewhere. But anyway, we get into a World War II bomber, and it's uh, you know somewhere in the I guess Pacific Theater maybe, and like it gets it interacts with the Lochnar after it gets it's been a bunch of its crews already been shot up, and it's still flying, and it interacts with the Lochnar, and then uh, <clears throat> what happens next, Pete? <laughs> Oh, uh, well, uh, they end up, uh, the, the green ball goes through the ship and some of the dead, uh, uh, no, that, that's not how it works. I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing it backwards. Uh, they basically, they crash, right? Well, no, yeah, and, I mean, you were right. Like the, the, okay. the, the, the when they interact with the Lochnar, <laughs> the green ball, uh, some of the crew become zombies in, in midair, right? And oh yeah, yeah. And so then, then uh, the the pilot uh, gets out, like manages to escape, and lands on an island. And it turns out the island is like full of zombies and planes and ships and stuff, like very bad. Like a bunch of different craft have wrecked there, and they, the crew have become zombies who are still there. So the yeah. pilot is not. And I like about this one; it's very, it's very simple. It's like a very simple horror story, um, but. It, it it was kind of lovingly done, and there was a lot of suspense, like of the crew members walking through this eerie, like plane that has big holes in it, and other crew members have been shot. And you know, I thought it was like by the time I got to that one, I was like, well, clearly these were made by different groups of people, and this one is one of the better ones to think, just kind of a technical level, um, even yeah. though it's a super simple simple narrative. So and, and fewer tits, I noticed that, like down to zero. Yeah, we had we had zero sexuality in this one, which was that was a, that was <laughs> the exception. Um, the next one, called "So Beautiful and So Dangerous," is you know, you're raring to speak here, Pete. What are you oh, say? well, it, it's sort of a funny one in that, like, in terms of plot and what's going on there, it's like it's goofy and not that good. But at the same time, it's it's full of some of the funniest lines in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's pure, this is pure comedy. So yeah. it opens and it seems like it could be kind of serious. We have this like really, you know, self-serious star scientist who shows up at the Pentagon and is like, the recent mutations of American citizens are not connected to any extraterrestrial uh, activity. And, and the senators are like, oh, thank God. And then the alien spacecraft hovers over the Pentagon and uh, like turns this guy berserk and like tries to abduct this doctor. Ooh, and this, pretty. 
And this hot, yeah, he like goes berserk on this woman, and then like he and the woman both get sucked up, and like he gets killed while being sucked up. But like she yeah. lands, and and <clears throat> yeah, uh, Pete, what are what are her relevant traits? Let's uh, let's take stock. <laughs> uh, well, she, she fishnet stockings, um, <laughs> redheaded Jewish huge tits. Yep, uh, um, there we go. <laughs> and we know she's Jewish because. This is a comedy, and she gets seduced by the robot on the alien. So this, this alien spacecraft, it's not, like, forbidding. It's it's run by uh, these three dudes, basically, two of whom are, like, these schlubby aliens with multiple noses who are basically when – when, when they started interacting, I was like, that, those are the guys from Clerks. Like, those are the <laughs> – oh. Yeah, I always used to think Cheech and Chong, but yeah, Clerks is pretty good. That's, Cheech, that's probably Chong, it. Clerks, Bill and Ted. It's the two bozo like male friends, right? Yeah. Um, and then they have the robot, who's the charming one, I guess, who is apparently very sexually proficient because he seduces this woman and they have sex and like he wants to get married to her and she's like, you know, we're just not compatible. Mixed marriages don't work. I might come home and find you fucking the toaster. Har, har, har. Right. <laughs> and then she says she wants a Jewish wedding. That's how we know she's Jewish. Anyway, the whole thing is like incredibly absurd. There's a, there's, a, there's a scene where the two bozo guys who are not getting laid are doing space drugs. Like they're doing space cocaine and snorting it in huge piles off the floor of the spaceship. Yeah, like they have a thing that looks like a, a fertilizer sprayer and they push it across the floor to spread lines of uh, Nibor every Nyborg, sorry everywhere and then like their their various noses hit the floor and they suck it all up and are wasted and then like that's sort of the end too that you get the you know it, it sort of goes psychedelic and they uh um you know they 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 fly home kind of thing uh, yeah and like that well the, there's the great scene where they're like trying to dock this, this spaceship and they're both high and they're, they're just like it's okay man i know how to do this and they kind of like wreck, wreck the ship and wreck the landing port and it's like whoa so you know classic like you said cheech and chong or bill and ted or like what you know whatever bozo dude stuff um yeah. And that's the one where we get Sammy Hagar's Heavy Metal, which, of course, is the, the song most associated with this. Um, I bet, you know, that, that one might be my favorite just because it is it like it, it so understands what this movie is, which is like the least serious thing ever. And it just it just wants to do everything for laughs. And it, it is funny about the sexuality rather than just being like boobs. So, like, yeah. it's everything about it, I thought, landed and was nicely written um, in a way that the rest of this mostly is not and I don't want to I don't want to be unfair here like as I go back over this like you know there's things to like about all these segments but that was my favorite um and then that leads us into Tarna which is by far the longest of these and seemed like the real core of the story apparently um yep. Pete, and was, wanna, yeah oh well in some ways it's my most and least favorite yeah well g- give us give us the premise here <laughs> okay so uh the premise here is that there are um there's a group of people called the Terrakians, and you can think of them as like soldier caste. What they do is protect another city, and the city is all like politicians and artists and good cooks and whatever, completely nonviolent. It's like when uh, the Spartans had, had, you know, would have alliances with Athens in a highly stylized way, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, a, a, ex, except, you know, uh, these guys were more reliable than the Athenians. But anyway, um, so what the, the Loch Nahr lands on the planet uh, as a meteor and uh, basically infects a bunch of people and turns them into um, 
green BDSM troll warriors and they start attacking the city, which has no defenses at all. And so they they send out a call for help to the last of the Tarakians, Tarna. And she rides like a big featherless seagull. She's got a big sword. She's, <laughs> her, her armor is composed entirely of like three or four belts. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, lingerie plus some like dom- red dominatrix boots. I mean, again, not subtle. Uh, not there's no effort here to pretend that this is not just the incredible sexualization of her. And you know, she's naked a lot throughout this. And I think that like this has one of the weirder. Um, like our introduction to her is weird, just because it's like this long silent scene, mostly silent scene with some voiceovers of her like flying through the wreckage like the body of like some gigantic dead dragon or something into this temple this is the really trippy like mandy style stuff and obviously like mandy cosmos what's his name like i'm sure he's seen this movie like 400 times but uh, (laughs) i mean that's where that's where shit like that comes from right anyway like she she goes to this temple where she has to swim through the water and go to this statue and get her gear on and the funny part to me is like it's like the original call went out for aid from the city and they got this, the peaceful city, they got overwhelmed. And it's like, meanwhile, Tarna is taking her sweet time, like doing her ritual and putting on her armor. And this is all taking several minutes. And it's like, all right, not exactly a minute man here. Got to put the lingerie on first. Yeah. <laughs> by the hour, are we? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, um, you know, she, so she flies to the, she gets into a bar fight initially because some, some of these, these, uh, green dudes try to hit on her and she kills them yep. in a bar. And the bar is cool because there's like a cool band and like, you know. Yeah, well, you know who the cool band is? That's Devo. Oh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> We're of course. Through. Being cool, yeah. I, I mean, that's one of my favorite. It, it's it's my be- favorite Star Wars bar scene knockoff because like Devo's playing, and it just makes it so much better for me. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And I have to say, like, let, let's not let's not mince our words here. Like, Tarna's arc is is clearly one. Like, if you go on, like like I think that this this um, segment is definitely the. One that sticks in people's minds because it's the longest, and as we'll as we will see when we get to the end here, like it's the kind of the core of it. So far as there is an overarching story, it's this, and I think it's also like one that is um, <laughs> it is it is it has it's one that has messed with the uh, the developing brains of many adolescent boys it, because it is it is far and away the rapiest. Well, of, it's just it's just yeah, it's erotic in, in like a little bit less of a of like a cartoonish boyish way because like what happens to her is she gets captured by the green people and stripped and tortured and it's like okay that's not sexualized at all and then like you know thrown into a dungeon naked and it's like well i mean let's let's be real here this is like yes this is incredibly eroticized and uh i'm sure a lot of 12 year olds are watching this and being like I didn't know sex was like this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's exa- <laughs> And that's what bothers me about this one. Like beyond that, I think it's a pretty cool story, but it just, it does. Um, the, there's no actual sex, interestingly, but it's just sort of like half implied and they move on and they torture her and stuff. And yeah. like, that's a connection that was made in a lot of kids' minds at that moment. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not at all here to kink shame, you know, BDSM. Oh, God, no. But this is like, this is, you know, non-consensual torture that's highly sexualized. And it's like, 
this is all very famous. Like I knew about I knew about that scene. I knew a lot about this character arc like well before I watched this because it did sink into the culture. It sinks into the culture because like if you watch that when you're 12, you're like, well, this is confusing and I'm not sure what to feel. Then you spend a lot of time th- like you should try to reflect on it. And it's like, yeah, yeah as Pete's saying, like probably if we're going to take the sexuality in this movie to task, we would focus on that scene. Cause it's the one where it's like, this is less of a cartoon and more just like, well, you could give people some, again, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, Pat Robertson here. I'm just saying that like, it's, it's very non-consensual and just, uh, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it, well, in any way, she uh, she does the vengeance thing, faces the leader, wipes him out. Yeah, and, and that's uh, kind of a, that's actually a cool fight scene. Like that's one time where this movie took the time to like choreograph a fight. You know. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 a lot of fun. I, I mean, the, unfortunately, the bad guy is gimmicky. Gimmicky. He basically Batman's his way to near success, but she wins, and then interestingly, she destroys the Lochnar. Yeah, so there's this. This is where it gets confusing, and it, and it definitely feels like what I suspect probably happened, which is they they all this stuff compiled. They realized that different creators are going in different directions, and they were like, "All right, man, we got to stick an ending on this thing." <laughs> so kind of out of nowhere, almost like she rides on her bird, Tarna rides on her bird uh, with her sword, and like lightning comes from nowhere, and she becomes like a being of lightning. And flies into the Lochnar Independence Day style and blows it up. <laughs> and I and I will say that scene where she pulls her sword out and does the lightning above the Lochnar and the whole arc of Den, I really think He Man came from this movie. Yeah, that he so He Man is a great parallel. Like that's a great one to draw in. When I see He Man like around this time that was coming out. Yeah, he was like eighty three, eighty four maybe. Yeah, but there, like right there. Right. Um and just like, yeah, so like we didn't, I didn't know that the Lochnar like seemingly like, well, okay, here's the, here's the thing that's really trippy about this, right? The timeline mixing thing again is happening where like the Lochnar is both intimidating this girl that it's been telling these stories to in this house in like, I don't know, Kansas or whatever. And it's doing that. And then simultaneously the Tarna stuff is happening. And then when Tarna blows it up, like the little girl is also saved. So like somehow this thing was telling the story of its own destruction while it was being destroyed, which is... Yeah, trippy. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I read that right, I mean, that's what I got out of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. Um, I, I, I guess, I guess, like, I thought the Lochnar was storytelling until I got to this point, and then I decided the Lochnar was television. Like, what, what he was showing the girl was happening in real time. Uh, oh yeah, like in an alternate dimension or something. So like he was yeah. trying to. Be- like he was so the Lochnar was so cocky that it was going to prevail. It was like, let me show you this, and then it was like, no, gotcha. But uh, yeah, I mean, like that. That's that's it. That's the tweet, man. <laughs> that's that's the tweet. Well, and then I mean, that we we must we must note that uh, this girl then runs out into a field after her house implodes, and she gets her own as as you called it, a a featherless seagull <laughs> flies down, <laughs> and she mounts it, and then we see that she has the Tarakian tattoo on her neck. And as she flies off, in case we didn't get the message, the voiceover says, and now this uh, blank, whatever her name is, little girl, is the next Tarakian who will defend us all from the Lakdar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was, I mean, and you're right. Like, this is the moment where I think anybody who's watching closely, which certainly isn't everybody, goes, you know what? They tacked that on. Like, that was not the plan at all. 
but they yeah, wanted to put a bow on this damn thing. We've, yeah, to be clear, we've used the phrase and the concept tacked on many times in this show. I think that might be the single most tacked on <laughs> ending I've ever seen in a movie. It was, yeah. it was. Well, yeah, you know that blue stuff you have to use in college to attach posters in the wall? Like, that that's that's what was used here to attach the ending to heavy metal. Like, it, it wasn't even tax. Yeah, it, the whole thing was just like... It, it, you know what? Honestly, though, the time we got there, I was kind of glad. I was like, hey, this, this poor little girl who's been tormented this whole time by this, this green orb, she gets... And her dad's dead, and, like, her house exploded. Now yeah. she gets her <laughs> Why own... Why do you keep showing me tits? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, then she gets to ride her own magical seagull into the cosmos. And it's like, all right, it's a happy ending. Like, we've gotten... We got somewhere good for this girl. Like, that's, that's nice. And, like, I... I have so many questions. I mean, this whole thing just pegs a lot of questions. But, like, question number one would be, like, why not just do a whole movie of Tarna the Tarakian? Because, like, clearly that's what they kind of wanted to do this whole time. Um, I guess they didn't. I mean, I'll tell you this. If they did a whole movie, she probably wouldn't be able to be mute. We didn't note that part. She does not talk. We don't know if she can talk, but she definitely doesn't talk, which just, again, adds to the whole, the many problems with the way that she's sexualized. Yeah, but no I voice. mean, it also had sort of a samurai cowboy feel as a result of that. Like she was, she, like she she was, except for the whole uh, sexualization part. She 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 sort of gave off that lone hero, uh, too tough to talk vibe. And I like that part was cool. Yeah, I mean, whatever, it's fine. I just like I wonder when one segment is like so dominant here and like defines the actual overarching part of the story. I'm like, what was the whole? I guess the whole. Con- I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, were there other anthology movies out there around this time, or was this 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 weird thing that got dropped into the culture? I don't know. Um. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I'm sure you could find something like that, but like the, this this was dominant and unusual. And I my my best guess is that the whole thing was just supposed to be a homage to the magazine. And that's why it was. It felt like a bunch of playing cards shoved together. Yeah, and those of us who are being critical of the concept, uh, you know, we had a point at the time. So I'm pretty sure this bombed at the box office, didn't it? Um, it whacked, well, uh, it actually did okay. Did it? Uh, yeah, it cost nine million to make, and it made twenty. Which, I mean, in today's dollars, isn't such a big deal. But like, I, I think back then, that's that's respectable. I mean, doubling your uh, your budget's not so terrible. Um, yeah, I'm looking at like uh, the Rotten Tomatoes aggregate review of this is it's sexist, juvenile, and dated, but heavy metal makes up for its flaws with eye popping animation and a classic smartly used soundtrack, which is a pretty fair like assessment. Like I, again, I think the point I want to hammer home here is like I, it, this is definitely a sexist, misogynist movie. It's just that like that is so on the surface that it's not even worth like hammering home I, I do think the one place where it's worth dissecting is in the the tarna stuff which we did um yeah but and the, the soundtrack i mean you know god like you could never there's you could no way in hell could you assemble a soundtrack like that now because it would be too expensive oh yeah it was superb well i mean it's the wkrp thing are you familiar with that show no okay well there was a in the 70s there was a um, at like a like a half hour serialized show like any one of them about a radio station in Cincinnati called WKRP. And what was awesome about it is they they made references to current music and played it, and that formed part of the plots. 
And later, when they started putting it in syndication and selling DVDs and everything else, they couldn't afford the music for that purpose, so they had to tear it out and like replace it with generic shit, so it never made any sense. Huh. Interesting. And it's a shame, because it's a great show, man. Like... Uh, you still find references to it online, like uh, the Thanksgiving episode where uh, one of the people sort of goes off on a wild tear and does a promotion where they start pushing turkeys out of a helicopter uh, over over a crowd, and that's when they discover that turkeys do not, in fact, fly. <laughs> like, I just mean, just a lot of bizarre stuff. I, I just want to talk a little bit about the soundtrack, because, like, let's... Yes. We, I'm, I'm going to go through some names here, as just going back up. Like, Black Sabbath, Debo have two songs each in the Tarna one um, going up. You've got, like, Sammy Hagar, Grand Funk Railroad, Cheap Trick, a bunch of other artists you've probably heard of as well. Um, like, uh, going up, um, Cheap Trick again. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, Here Stevie we go. Nicks, o- open Journey. Arms. Yeah, Stevie <laughs> Nicks, Journey, Blue Oyster Cult. Like, and there's a bunch of other songs in there, but and like a bunch of those bands have multiple songs, and it's just like, dude, like like <laughs> the music industry got wise to this whole concept, which is why like only you know Disney Marvel movies can af- like only they can afford like oh we want immigrant song by Led Zeppelin, so we can get that for <laughs> Thor Ragnarok, and it's probably going to cost us well into seven figures. Um, and I assume the rights to all of these were sold for well they had to have been sold for a lot less based on the budget. So like the whole thing is just like. A marvel that we will not see again of of using like famous music by famous artists in a movie um and that part rocks like i think like if you're on the fence about to watch this by this point obviously we spoiled it for you but like it's not much to spoil it's you know it's heavy metal you've probably heard about this all before and it's not that suspenseful anyway but like if you're on the fence about to watch it just keep this in mind it's like less than an hour and a half long and it has amazing soundtrack so it's probably worth watching yeah yeah i mean i um I wouldn't watch it with my nieces, but <laughs> right time, right place. I mean, the, the, it's 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 eye candy. It's great eye candy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was glad to have watched it. I had fun with it, um, and this has been fun to talk about. And I think we're probably a good place to leave it. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, I think that's true. Okay. Well, uh, <clears throat> thanks everyone. I think we're probably gonna have some Sammy Hagar sending us home. Take care. Sounds good. Yeah. Can we open with Devo? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to go Blue Oyster Cult, but Devo it is. Fair enough. Thanks, man. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.